Amen. All right, so we took a week off. We're back in Proverbs, so just a quick recap. Uh, We spent a lot of time on the first nine chapters, the poetic portion of Proverbs. So we dealt with these poems from father to son, um, dealing with a lot of the pitfalls that young men and people of all ages face. And really, uh, they culminated where we ended last, the Feast of Lady Wisdom versus the Feast of Lady Folly. And the call to the simple of who will you feast with? Where will you be, be dining? Will you uh, eat of wisdom? Will you draw close to the Lord because you, you fear him and you, you love him? Or will you dine with the dead with Lady Folly? And so the feast is now before us. So the, we're transitioning, beginning in chapter 10, uh, through most of the rest of the book, we have a series of individual Proverbs. And so when people think of the book of Proverbs, this is what you typically think of. Uh, standalone verses that are, that are kind of timeless truths that uh, we, we, we pull at, but we don't really uh, often know what they're connected to or where they are. So we're going to spend the foreseeable future, uh, first of many, I don't, I don't know how many, uh, in the themes of, uh, of uh, Proverbs. So this is my first topical sermon, if you want to call it that. It is, it is thematic. It is exegetical. It's not expositional. You don't, you, a lot of you guys don't know what those words mean. Basically, we always go verse by verse, but if you go uh, verse by verse through Proverbs starting in chapter 10, you're going to feel very schizophrenic. So we'll see how this goes. Preparing this week is a little bit like brushing my teeth with my left hand. Like, I don't really know what I'm doing. Uh, we'll, we'll see how this, how this turns out. So in these themes, we're going to be jumping around a bit uh, in the bulk of, of Proverbs. But there are many themes that are repeated often. And uh, this week, as you can see by the title, the theme is the King of Kings. And so uh, being the uh, Palm Sunday, historically, the day when the, the church celebrates or recognizes Jesus' triumphal entry, the proclamation of a coming king into Jerusalem, we're going to look at uh, Proverbs' helpfulness in the king in, in Proverbs. So uh, there's an idealized king in Proverbs, meaning when you look at these verses we're going to look at, you're like, that sounds great, but that doesn't sound like any king of Israel or any kings I know, uh, because again, this is an ideal. And so here's the thing uh, about these individual Proverbs. They are not universal truths that are always applicable. Rather, um, they are generally true uh, and they're context sensitive, meaning these are true when they're applied, how they're supposed to be applied. They're, they're true when they're applied in the right context with the right motivation. This is what the people of God should strive for, not what they often measure up to. And so, uh, like many Proverbs, there's going to be an ideal picture of a king that's, that's painted here. Again, this is not an absolute, especially if you're familiar with the kings of Israel. Um, and so, what I want you to get before we go any further, remember that the bulk of these, everyone we're going to read this morning, is written by Solomon. A king who's writing to his son, sons, one of whom, whom, two of whom will become kings. And so Solomon, before uh, he goes too far off the rails, actually gives wise, godly advice to his sons. This is what he wants them to know. Here's what you should strive toward as, as king. The wisest man who ever lived, um, apart from the God-man, gives gives godly wisdom for his sons. Because in every way, the king of Israel was to reflect the Lord. But part of Israel's problem is that the Lord was supposed to be their king. They desired a king like like all the other nations, but their true king, the one who rules and judges them, is the Lord. Uh, One verse for that, Isaiah 33, 22. It'll be up on the screen. Uh, Isaiah understands this. In theory, Israel should understand this, but in practice, they look to, the Lord, to their king for their savior. Uh, Isaiah says here, for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. This is supposed to be the cry of Israel, but they do have earthly kings, and the Lord blesses it, and he makes a covenant with, 
with David, the first in this long line of kings, and Solomon is second in this, this line. And these kings were supposed to be God's representatives of order and faithfulness and righteousness and justice before his, his people. They're supposed to be consistent in acting according to the counsel of the prophets and the commandments as taught by the priests. And so uh, we're going to begin in Matthew 21, so you can, you, you can turn there. And so as the as the entrance of the messianic king into Jerusalem, the expectations were high. And we'll see those a moment, in a moment in, in Proverbs. Um, you can understand the excitement when the rumors hit that a king is coming. Our king is finally here. So let me set the stage a little bit. When Jesus uh, begins his ministry, Israel had the semblance of freedom, meaning they had this freedom where they could come and go and they could kind of live their lives, but it was a facade because the glory of the nation of Israel and of Judah had been lost for hundreds of years. They were way past their their prominence. They were living under and they were subjugated to Rome. They had no king, they had no power, and they had no hope of liberation. So they were they, they, were, they, were, they were free, but under the hand and the thumb and the power of Rome. You want to think about it. They were like a dog in a small backyard. It seems like he's got freedom. When he goes outside, he runs around, and it's, and it's great. But he knows that there's something beyond the fence. And so they are like this dog who's got a, a small backyard, but they can't wait for their master to come home because he gets to open the gate and I get to run free and I get to be who I was designed to be. So there's this, there's this national identity and this national longing that is built up in them. Every day they are taught and reminded that we come from kings. God has promised us a throne forever. Our nation is supposed to be a, a light on a hill. We're supposed to stand out from all the other nations, but we don't look like that right now. So there's a, there's a, there's a discomfort every day. And so when they hear that the, the king incarnate is coming, how do they respond? Like, like, an, like an eager dog, and so um, in a good way. And so that's why we see the excitement that we, that we do. So I want to read all of this account in, in Matthew, and then I'll reference the other accounts. So this is Matthew 21, beginning in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. So, stop here for a moment. Matthew is a Jew who's writing primarily to Jews. So when he references this account, he brings it back to the prophet Zechariah. He says in verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, children of Israel, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So Matthew recognizes and tells his readers, this is fulfilling prophecy. This is the coming king. The disciples, verse 6, went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the, on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, i.e. king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So, Matthew, writing to Jews, picks up on the prophet, prophecy from Isaiah. But every gospel account includes the triumphal entry. And every gospel writer includes an aspect of this kingship. We won't go to each one, but Mark 14, 10. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Looking to David and his kingdom, they were anticipating this, this promised throne and nation that God, uh, that, that God promised them. Luke 19, 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is not just the king of Israel. This is the, king, this is the Lord's king. Luke 
records those words. John 12, 13, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even or as much as the king of Israel. So each one of them picks up on this. This was not lost on the people of Jerusalem. They knew what this signified. They recognized him as prophet and as, as king. And as we know, pretty soon they would shout for his, his, crucifi- his crucifixion. So when Israel pictures an ideal king, he had come. This envisioned king is Christ the Lord. So let's, let, let's back up. What did Israel envision? What type of king were they expecting? What was the king that they were so excited about? What type of reign, what type of kingdom were they to anticipate? And now Proverbs has much to say about that. So uh, we're going to begin in chapter 16 of Proverbs. I'm going to read Proverbs 16, uh, 10 through 15. This is going to be the framework of everything we're going to be looking at. And so uh, I'll explain the framework in just a moment. It's also in your notes. Proverbs 16, verse 10. An oracle is on the lips of a king. His mouth does not sin in judgment. A just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. It is an abomination to kings to do evil. For the throne is established by righteousness. Righteous lips are the delight of a king. And he loves him who speaks what is right. A king's wrath is a messenger of death, and a wise man will appease it. In the light of a king's face there is life, and his favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you this morning. You are great and awesome, God. You have given us your word. You have fulfilled it in your son. You have preserved it in your spirit. That we would know who our God is. <clears throat> that we would know our king. Lord, as we read these texts this morning, may we see Christ. May we see his glories, his excellencies, his goodness, his righteousness, his justice. Let your people praise him. Cause us to hold fast to the name of Jesus Christ, our King. The final prophet who is also our high priest. Our mediator in whose name we stand before you today. We who are in Christ are citizens of his kingdom. He is our King. Everything that Israel hoped for is in him. We pray that as the gospel goes out this morning, that as your word is preached across the globe, that the name of the Lord King Jesus will be lifted up on high. And that more lost sheep would come to the fold, citizens of his kingdom will repent And believe and trust in him because in him there is light and life in the favor of his face. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so as we're going to see in our text, this text is going to work as the structure for our sermon this morning. So a king in Proverbs is marked by what he does and who he is. Um, So there's this high ideal for the king, and this passage is going to bear it out, and we'll look at a few others as well. Uh, But the first one we're going to see is rule in verses 10 and 11. The rule of a king is his manner of exercising authority. It's his his governance, his his regulation. It's, um, It's how he wields his power. Two, uh, we're going to look at righteousness in verses 12 and 13. Um, this is his, his character and the moral quality of his reign. And, the, and his righteousness is not just only in him, but it's also in his subjects and in his judgments. So everything in this king's kingdom is to be marked by righteousness. And then lastly, we're going to look at his reign. So the reign is the, the right to rule. It's his authority and his longevity. So reign is rule over time. And we'll see that in verses 14 and 15. So to get you to understand the difference between rule and reign, a king rules in his reign. 
The rule is the way he governs, the, the, the reign is the authority and the time that, that he governs. So we're going to look at all three of those. So let's jump in, verse 10. Remember, this is an ideal because if, if you read this thinking that this is an absolute truth, so this is why how we read the scriptures is important. Because if you read all the scriptures the same way, when people ask, do we read the Bible literally? Of course, when it is meant to be read literally. If we read verse 10 literally, the name of the... Um, Page flips. Verse 10. Uh, an oracle on the lips of a king, excuse me, an oracle is on the lips of a king, and his mouth does not sin in judgment. If we read that literally, that means every king is infallible, and we've got a bunch of popes running around. Uh, that's not the case. This is an ideal. This is what kings should, should strive for, because this certainly doesn't sound like the kings of Israel. So who does this sound like? Let's look at these two lines here, these two cola within the, the, the verse, an oracle is on the lips of a king. An oracle. This is divine speech. This is divine inspiration and, and, and wisdom. Now, David spoke inspired speech. Solomon spoke inspired speech. So, therefore, th- that part applies to those kings. Hezekiah and several others' words are uh, inscripturated. They are, they're, they're held as divine wisdom. But his mouth does not sin in judgment. None of those guys fit this. Definitely not David. Definitely not Solomon. Does not sin. Only Israel's true king is marked by no sin. Hebrews 4 tells us that he's tempted as we are in every way, yet without sin. So here's the first thing. The true king of Israel must speak divine speech. We know of Jesus Christ that he is the word, incarnate. Everything he says is divine speech. More so, anytime anyone speaks divinely, it is by the inspiration of his spirit and consistent with him. He's the only king who could do this. He's the only king who's ever sinless. And so this sinless king stands as a representative for Israel. Not only is he a sinless king, but he's the sinless sacrifice and the sinless mediator and the sinless prophet. So all of the expectations that were tainted by sin in every other office and every other person who lived in Israel is fulfilled in the sinless one. And we know this theologically, and we should, we should hold on to our sinless Savior. We know he was sinless on earth. We know he didn't sin here. But it's interesting here, his mouth does not sin in judgment. I think we sometimes forget that he's also sinless in his decisions. Because how often do we question what our Lord does, where our Lord has us, how long he takes to fulfill his promises? How often do we think maybe he made a a mistake? Because I'm not supposed to be here. I'm not supposed to be made this way. I'm not supposed to be used this way. I'm something else. And in our complaining and in our grumbling and in our discontentment, we think Christ has sinned and where he has us and what he's doing with us. We would never say that, but how many of us act like that? Not only was he sinless on earth, but he's sinless in all of his judgments. He does not make mistakes. And as his people, we should know that and take comfort in that. Because if this is where he has you, this is what he's doing in your life, it is a good thing. And it is part of his plan because he loves his people. Let's move on. Verse 11, still dealing with the the, the rule here. We don't get this in English, but the last word of verse 10 and the first word, the first full word um, in in Hebrew, verse 11, judgment and and just the same Hebrew word, mishpat, um, which it, it means judge. D- d- decision uh, to, to be, um, to apply truth rightly. So he does not sin in any of his judgments, and his judgments are a, a, a balance of, of scales and weights. Um, so this doesn't really make sense to us. We don't get the balance weights, and we, we, we've seen um, the uh, impartial woman What's her name? The lady with the blindfold? Blanking at the moment. Lady Justice. Yeah, she, she's blindfold. She's got the, the, the two scales. 
And so we don't really use scales anymore. And we take this for granted because we have universal weights and measures. Every, every one of us, you should, owns a tape measure. You know, every, every one of us um, has the same currency. But it wasn't so in that day. Because when you would go to, to trade or to do business, every vendor, every merchant had their own bag of, of weights. And so imagine every time you go to the market, your goods are being measured out by someone else's weights. And so, of course, it would never happen that someone would rig their, their weights or, or uh, shave off a little bit so to, to put the odds in their favor. This was a common occurrence. And so when it says here, a just balance and scales are the Lord's, all the weights in the bag are his work, each vendor, each merchant would have a bag of weights. And so... Um, each king would have a, a set of weights and measures. Only the Lord has just balance and scales. And if you're a king, you must represent the Lord. Don't rig your, your weights. Don't rig your, your scales. Don't work things in your favor. Crooked kings would tip the scales in their favor. Um, but this king, this king that represents the Lord, he doesn't sin in his judgments and he doesn't sin in his measurements. But we know there has never been a king on this earth who has not succumbed to greed or to partiality. There's only one king who can do that. And if there's any goodness in any king, it comes from him. You remember this from Proverbs 8, Proverbs 8, 15 and, and 16. It's the wisdom of God by me, this wisdom that kings reign and rulers decree what is just by me. Princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. Any good in any king comes from the Lord. And all his work is fair and without partiality. And so there has never been a time where anyone has been under a perfect and just ruler. We are no different. But praise God that our king is right and true. Praise God that our king's measurements are just. That he cannot be bribed or swayed or driven by his urges. He rules as it is meant to be. But I think often people treat him like he's a, he's a corrupt politician. Like he can be bribed. Um, so it's interesting. I heard uh, Chris Rock tell a story, not about the time he got slapped, but... Um, about really wanting to pat himself on the back because he gave $5 to a homeless man. And he said, yeah, I went out and, you know, basically did my, my good deed. But he said, I didn't do it for him. I did it for me. I did it for me thinking maybe God would notice me. This is his direct quote. Hey, God, look what I'm doing. I gave $5 to this homeless man. Can you bless me? How many people treat God like that? How many people treat our king like that, like he can be bribed? Like, I'm going to do, you know, I, I know I have, I, I don't love you. I don't, I don't live for you. Everything in my life is surrounded around me. But every once in a while, I'll slide five bucks your way so that you, could, you can look on me favorably. How many people treat the Lord like that? How many people would claim to be Christians and live like that? Pat themselves on the back because they did one good deed a week ago. Let's move on. Verse 12. Now we get into the character and moral nature of this kingdom. It is an abomination to kings to do evil. And for the throne is established in righteousness. So as we'll see in the next couple of verses, this moral standard, this righteousness applies to all works and all speech in this, in this kingdom. It is absolute. But yet, there is no king who has ever marked this. It is an abomination to kings to do evil. It's interesting. This word abomination is only ever applied to the Lord. The Lord is the only one who can truly see something as an abomination. Here is the, is the unique place where it's applied to a king, saying that a king should hate what the Lord hates. A king should have the same moral standard of righteousness that the Lord, their God, does. The kings of Israel and Judah were, according, were to judge according to the Lord's standards. For the throne is established by righteousness. David and all of his posterity were supposed to represent the Lord in righteousness. They were supposed to see what is abomination and what is pleasing to the Lord. 
but often they were guilty of abominations themselves. If they were righteous, if they established the throne on the principles of the Lord their God, if they were obedient, the entire nation would be blessed. But no king has ever lived up to that. Here's a couple examples. Uh, Let's look at Proverbs 20, verse 8. Talking about the righteous judgments of, of, of the king. Proverbs 20, verse 8. A king who sits on the throne of judgment winnows all evil with his eyes. So here's the throne of judgment. The king makes decisions. The winnowing floor is where the wheat was saved and the chaff was, was blown away. So this is what the king was supposed to do. Every case that would come before him, he was supposed to rid the nation of the evil and, and keep the good. And a good king... He winnows all evil before his eyes. So he's got this this righteous gaze that as he looked upon a case, he would banish all evil and he would be right and true in all of his judgments. This is what the king was supposed to do. And we've got great examples of this in Solomon. But far too often, this is not what the king did. Here's another example, Proverbs 29, 14. Proverbs 29, 14 says, If a king faithfully judges the poor, his throne will be established forever. How you treat the least of these my people will determine the longevity of your throne. If you are an oppressor, if you are evil, I will take this throne from you. The ideal here is to judge, decide what is right. Be a defender of the weak and the helpless, and your throne will last forever. There is only one king. There is only one son of David who will, who will ever or could ever rule like this. This was to put a taste in Israel's mouth. This is what a king is supposed to be. This is the type of king we want and we need and we've never had. But only one king is promised and could ever do this. Turn to Isaiah 11. Get there quickly if you can. If not, it'll be up on the screen. Here is the promise. Notice everything we're seeing about the king coming together in this prophecy. Isaiah 11 verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. What is the stump of Jesse? The house of David, David's father, coming forth from Jesse, from the tribe of Judah, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Notice this branch. Look at the character of this person and his kingdom. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, sound like Proverbs. The spirit of counsel and might also sound like Proverbs. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord will cover all of those themes in Proverbs. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, Remember, man looks on the outward appearance, the Lord looks on the heart, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This is a righteous and good king. This is who Israel was looking forward to. This is the ideal in Proverbs. And this can only be one man. So this righteous king is righteous in all of his judgments, but he's not just content in his own righteousness. Here's where we take it up a level. He is to be righteous, but in order for his kingdom to bring him glory as it should, everyone else in his kingdom should be righteous too. They must be righteous. So this king doesn't just leave the standard at his own righteousness. He expects it it from everyone else in his court. Look at the next verse back in Proverbs 16. Righteous lips are a delight of the king. And he loves who speaks what is right. Not just his righteousness, but the standard is for everyone else in his kingdom as well. Notice, righteous lips are the delight of the king. He surrounds himself with people who speak as he does. He's got pure speech and pure ears. 
This is what he wants to hear. This is what he delights in. Not so with earthly kings. Earthly kings surround themselves with yes men. With people they want to hear. With people who confirm what they already think about themselves. With people who, who um, will do anything they can to further their agenda. Whether it's honorable or not. But this king loves righteous lips. Let me break it to you. If you're not aware about this about yourself, you do not have righteous lips. You don't. It is impossible for your sinful heart to speak what is right and good and true to the king. You have no cause to come before his righteous throne. Yet, isn't it amazing that his love would create in us what he loves. Isn't it amazing that Christ sacrificed for us? Our king becomes our sacrifice. Not only does he save us, but he makes us new. Not only does he save us judiciously, erases our sins, but gives us a new, a, a, a new identity. We become new creatures who begin to speak like him begin to think like him, who love what he loves. This is how much he loves his kingdom, that he wants to surround, people, surround himself with people who are as, as righteous as he is. This is why it's amazing that the cross accomplishes freedom from sin, eternal life, and the righteousness of Christ applied to our lives now and forevermore. He is building his kingdom with righteous people through his blood. Through his sacrifice, he wants us to speak like him. He wants us to think like him. Our king wants us to look like him. He has invited us into the palace and seats us at his table so we can sit up straight and look like our king. Just like a bird is known by its song, don't we want to be known as friends of the king? Righteous lips are the delight of a king, and he loves who speak what is right. Can people say that about you? Does your speech link you to the king? What does it say about you? Does righteousness come from your lips? Or do you claim the king yet sound like the world that he dragged you in from. Do We want to be those that he loves, and it looks like his love is on us because we speak what is right. So we've seen the righteousness in his acts, in his rule, uh, now in his speech, and then we're going to get in this last section, the quality of his reign. Verse 14, his authority and the uh, length of, of his reign. So there is a notice in verse 14 and, and 15 we're going to do with death and life. And a king, he has the power over life and death. Verse 14, a king's wrath is in a messenger of death. Um, here's another cultural reference we're not really familiar with. But when a king would pronounce death upon someone, uh, he's not going to go and knock on the door himself. He would send a messenger, a messenger of death. The king has committed you to be hung or, um, or w stoned or whatever it is. The king has condemned you to death. You don't want to get that messenger. But our king has messengers too. Our king sends out messengers with life sentences. Offering life in him. We get to be those messengers. We're not messengers of death. We are messengers of life. Our king is a king of life, and he bids all to trust in him and have life. But if you reject it, his wrath is fierce. And his wrath means certain death. If you reject this king... He will send a messenger of death to your home just like he did to the Egyptians. 
And without the blood covering over your, your door, you will die in your own blood like the Egyptians did. All kings with true authority to reign over people have the power of life and death in their hands. Our king is the power of life and death in their hands. But our king offers life to whosoever may believe. And the wise man, second half of verse 14, and a wise man will appease it. This word in the Hebrew can also be translated cover or atone. Think about that. And a wise man will cover it. A wise man will atone for it. The king's wrath must either be satisfied or covered. Think about the gospel connection here. We deserve the wrath of the king, but a wise man is covered, is atoned for the wrath of God. How amazing is it that our God provides the requirement for the wrath, satisfies it himself that we justly deserve. Our king is also our covering. The one who is right to judge and dole out his wrath is also the atonement for sin. And if we are wise, here is our appeal, Christian. If we are wise, our appeal is to his covering. Our appeal is to his atonement, not our own. How do you know that you are saved? How do you know that you have eternal life? The king has given me his blood. The king has laid down his life for me. The king is my covering. Because there is nothing righteous on my lips. I deserve his wrath. I am marked for death by my own sin. Yet he is the wise man who has atoned for my sin. So here's the bad news. The king's wrath is a messenger of death. There is hope for the wise man who who has covering for his sin. But now the good news, the beautiful picture of this benevolent king in verse 15. In the light of a king's face, there's life. And his favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. Let's talk about this for a moment. So his, his face... You're familiar with uh, the benediction in Numbers. May the light of his countenance shine upon you, his face. If God shows you his face, it's a good thing. If God looks on you with, with delight, it's a good thing. The kings are supposed to mirror that. If this king smiles in your direction, it will go well for you. How much more so if the king of glory smiles in your direction how much more so if, if his face is upon you and it leads to life and favor here all the ancient kings they directly affected the quality of life and the length of life of their people remember the scene from gladiator where caesar determines whether he's going to live or die every king had that that power they could give them the thumbs up Say, let him live, or give him the thumbs down and take his life. It wasn't that dramatic. That's, that, that's Hollywood, but every king had that power. This is the power of his, his reign. But in the light of the king's face, there is life. And the king, if the king of kings says, you are mine, I have given you my covering, I have given you my life, I give you the thumbs up, that is the best sign you will ever see. Because he will protect you from death forever. And his favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. This light of the king's face. It's this beautiful natural picture. Let's think about the light of our king's face for a moment. Have you seen the light of the face of Jesus Christ? Have you seen his mercy? Has he given you his grace? Has he drawn you in and adopted you into his, into his family? 
Has he fed you and encouraged you and nourished you? Have you grown in his light? Have you seen his face? Have you seen the fruit that a life in Christ bears? Have you seen the love and the joy and the peace and the patience and the kindness and the goodness and the gentleness and the self-control that comes from the work of Christ in your life? Do you know this light? This light is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. These spring rains, these are the waters that prepare the soil for the seeds to be planted. These spring rains are the ones that make the soil fertile enough to have a great harvest. There is no growth without the spring rains. The seeds will not germinate without the spring rains. The shoots will not come up out of the ground without the the spring rains. This is how much we need the light of the face of the king. Our king reigns, R-E-I-G-N-S, with a life-giving reign, R-A-I-N, of growth and harvest. Our king's reign is marked by rain, life-giving rain that brings fruitfulness, that brings strength, that brings abundance. This should encourage and embolden us. His life-giving water that brought us into life brings us into new life, and it sustains us. It's these, these, these beautiful clouds that bring in spring rain, and we're in the perfect season for it. We are getting our spring rains in Florida. We kind of take this for granted because we have taps of running water and we have irrigation, but think about it. The last few weeks, how green has everything been? When Jim Renahan was here last week, he was, he was telling me, you know what struck me about Florida? How green everything is. He's like, in, where they are in Texas, they don't get a lot of rain, and so everything's, everything's still pretty brown. Like, it, it's green here. I, I see life everywhere around. We are so we don't realize how dependent on water we are. We, we, we see the spring rains, we see everything turning green and thriving, and it's a picture of health and creation. We know something is healthy when it is green and it is vibrant. These are the spring rains. But we often take the water for granted until we miss it again in about a month or two from now and we get three weeks of drought and everything dries up and is miserable if it doesn't get water. Right now, we take the water for granted but we're going to be wishing we had it in another month or two. Many arid places out west, they they have to conserve and redirect water or they will not survive. Brothers and sisters, this is the Christian life. When you are in the spring rain and everything's green and everything's growing, you're like, this is great. It's always going to be like this. But if you've been in Florida for any amount of time or anywhere else where you don't get constant rain, You miss it when it's not there. In the light of our king's face, his water nourishes us, and we are green and bright. Yet we take it for granted and often begin to be dried up. What we need to do is we need to store up and drink up because we will have times of drought. We will have times of struggle, and we need water to draw on. We need a deep well of this of, of this nourishing rain from our king. But some neglect him and wither. Some think that this Christian life, it's always going to be spring. Well, guess what? It gets really hot, and you get put to the test after spring and summer. And then it gets really lean, and you get put to the test in fall. And then it gets really cold and barren, and you get put to the test in winter. Spring's coming, but it's not always spring. And often I think we treat the Christian life like it's always spring. It's not. Many of you are not prepared for the difficulties and the challenges. Because you kick back in spring and you take for granted the goodness of his water. But we must drink. We must find our nourishment and we must store it up by by barrels so that we can draw on it when the rains don't come. Because even when this world is in drought and our circumstances are a mess, how many of you have had nothing else to draw on but his spring rain? 
Have you had that? If you have experience that you know how desperately you need it and how you can't live without it for the rest of the year. You can't just rely on rain a couple times a year and think that you're going to grow and flourish. We grow and flourish by drinking all the time. That's how bushes grow. That's how trees grow. That's how we grow. Um, this last section is summarized in Proverbs 19.12. Proverbs 19.12 says this. A king's wrath is like the growling of a lion, but his favor is like the dew in the grass. That is our king. If you are under his wrath, it is a growl of a lion. But if you are under his favor, it is like the cool dew on the grass between your toes in the morning. Um, bonus text. I forgot to mention it earlier when we're talking about speech. One more in um, Proverbs twenty-two eleven, just so you have it. Talking about speech, tying all this together. Uh, he who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king as a friend. Proverbs twenty-two eleven. He who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king as a friend. So remember that picture of the king and his, his wrath and his favor. This is what's at stake in the gospel. You are either under his wrath and he is growling like a lion who is right to devour you because you were dinner. Or you are his friend who speaks righteousness, who has found his favor, who is, has the covering of his son and it's this beautiful dew in the morning. Because there's something that marks this kingdom that is different from every other kingdom. Let's look at chapter 20, verse 28. Got two more. We're going to end on these last two. Proverbs 20, 28. Steadfast love and faithfulness preserve the king. And by steadfast love, his throne is upheld. Steadfast love. If you learn any Hebrew word, if you learn one Hebrew word, Chesed. Yes, you got to clear your throat a little bit. Chesed. Steadfast love, covenant loyalty. This is something that only God possesses and no one else will ever possess. Love that does not quit. Loyalty that does not end. A faithfulness that is unparalleled. Notice here, no earthly king can fulfill this. This is only something that God can do, but this is what kings should aspire to. Steadfast love and faithfulness preserve the king. And by his chesed, his throne is upheld. If steadfast love is what preserves the king and his throne, how much will the steadfast love of the Lord preserve the throne of Christ? This is why he reigns forever. This is why his kingdom will be for a thousand generations, meaning it goes on as far as you can see into the future. Because his steadfast love never fails. His steadfast love never ends. This is why his, his reign will be forever. Because his chesed is forever. This is why we read from Psalm 89, 1 through 4 this morning. I want to read it again. Read it with the understanding of what steadfast love is. God's faithfulness to his people. God's unending love toward those who he sets his love on. This is why the psalmist sings, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness being synonymous here. You have said I have made a covenant with my chosen one. Guess who that is? I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring, singular, forever, and build your throne for all generations. This is what marks our king, steadfast love, the promise to David and his offspring, a throne that will last forever. When this king sheds his life, or his, his face on you, when this king gives you his favor, you are a member of this kingdom forever. These words we will be saying forever because they are true and they're found in him. So what do we do with this? We talked all about our 
our king and how Christ fulfills everything in the scriptures, what do we do? Chapter 24, Proverbs 24, we're going to end here. Proverbs 24, 21, and 22. This is very much like Psalm 2. The nations rage and the peoples plot in vain. God has, the, the, God has set his hill or his king on his holy hill. Kiss the son because uh, his anger is quickly kindled. Here's the counsel from father to son. My son, fear the Lord and the king. Do not join with those who do otherwise, for disaster will arise suddenly from them. And all, and who knows the ruin that will come from them both. Fear the Lord. This goes back to the purpose of Proverbs. In Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And fools, excuse me, the beginning of knowledge. And fools despise wisdom and understanding. Fear the Lord and the king. Our Lord is our king. Son, fear the Lord. The king of kings is Lord Jesus Christ. This king, he rules in justice and equity and he reigns forever. Do not join with those who do anything apart from his kingdom. Do not join with those who don't fear the Lord. Why? For disaster will arise suddenly from them. And all who knows the ruin, and who knows the ruin that will come from them both. Let's break this down quickly. Remember, we, looked at, we started with a triumphal entry. He came first lowly and on a donkey. His entry into Jerusalem did not seem triumphant. Seemed kind of underwhelming. But he triumphed at the cross. The triumph was not in the entry. The triumph was at the cross. He came lowly and humbly, and they wanted nothing to do with him. But his return will be sudden. Remember, we saw this in 2 Peter. Like a thief in the night, Jesus promised that the master could return at any time. When he comes suddenly, what does it mean for you if you're apart from the king? Disaster and ruin. For disaster will arise suddenly from them. And who knows what ruin will come from them both. For those who reject him, his second return is not going to be pretty. But for those who are in him, for us, if you are in Christ, his return in triumph and glory will be awesome. That's how the word should be used. It will be awesome in every way. It is triumphant. For those who fear the Lord, because he has triumphed over sin and death. I want to close with 1 Timothy 1. This will be our, it will be our prayer. Jonathan can make his way up. Uh, he's going to lead us in a response. And then Jesse will give us directions for what we do next. 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 17. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.